Hey all, this is another Chris and Steve Nerd Out episode. We recorded this a while back, but there were some important topics we wanted to cover in the interim before releasing this episode, and as we've said, we've been quite busy lately. But we really think there's a lot of nice ideas in this one, and we're happy to get it out. A brief content warning that this episode does talk about alcohol, alcoholism, and PTSD from war experiences, albeit from a simulated context. Still, those are sensitive issues for some people, so we wanted to give people a heads up. Also, the 2021 Capitol riot is mentioned briefly as a kind of disturbing emergent behavior stemming from a destructive kind of populism, when examined from a social systems perspective. But note that there's a lot more to that topic we don't go into, especially around histories of racism, injustice, and perceived injustice. A game design perspective from the outset doesn't accommodate all of the aspects of a game state and narrative of a game in progress, shall we say. In other words, it's not the case that all real-world players in real-world social games are playing out morally equivalent roles. Nonetheless, it can be useful to be able to anticipate and prevent certain kinds of behaviors from an analytical point of view if you can recognize the scoping and limitations of that analysis. Anyway, hope you'll enjoy this episode. We had a lot of fun recording it, and hope you'll have just as much fun listening to it. Hello! Welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host Steve and my co-host Chris. Ah, uh, Steve's Steve's back. We're here to do another nerd out on one of my favorite topics. I guess one of our favorite topics. Yeah, I like this one too. On board games, and uh, we're going to intersect it with social systems. Yep. So I guess the core idea here is that board games are a way to start thinking about social system design and about society. And um, I guess, let me ask the question, why would you choose board games or games at all as a reason to think about social system design? Well, I think that they are a great model for society. Uh, Board games have economics. They have plenty of political narratives um, and consensus. They have fairness. And fairness uh, that you're establishing with your friends, right? Uh, Within your social circle um, and within the mechanics themselves. So I think they're a great framework. And I think you really got me more interested in board games than... I was in the past, uh, and I guess part of the reason that you encouraged me to start looking at them more is because, as you said, the great thing about board games as opposed to things like video games is that you get to participate in making the thing run, and you can see how the pieces uh, work, basically. So that helps us be able to think about what the structure is, as opposed to like a video game might have a lot of moving parts behind the scenes that we might not really get to see. Right. So just by the nature of the medium, right, you're sitting around with cards in hand or a board in front of you, and every player has to know the rules, and the game has to be simple enough mechanically that everyone can execute it. So it is a way of zooming in and seeing the innards of how a system works and what can uh, emerge from it. But I mean, maybe we could learn things by, I could have like a virtual machine. And I just invite all my friends over and we just like execute 
this machine manually step by step and and we could learn a lot about systems and maybe even society that way but what would be the problem with doing that type of approach well you kind of are doing that with board games except the machine's a lot more fun to run frankly if you're trying to boot up linux and run all of the machine code by hand that's going to be a pretty boring experience right well that's actually probably a pretty impossible experience for somebody to <laughs> do a manual simulation of booting linux i would be impressed if somebody managed to to do a manual process of booting the Linux kernel. That would be overwhelming. But yes, um, that that is absolutely true. So part of it is that it's a simplified a simplified model and it's fun. So yeah, so board games is a simplified model. It's what's nice is that it's engaging enough for us to be willing and interested to play it together, as opposed to just mechanically um, simulating something that we can't kind of identify with, right? Right. So those mechanics, they're getting mixed with some theme that's engaging. Perhaps you're some sort of Jurassic Park explorer, or the classic one is you're building some sort of medieval town. But it's relatable enough that everyone can uh, get engaged. And it's a low stakes environment because you're just sitting around with friends. Yeah. Part of our thinking here kind of stems back to... Well, I guess I'm just gonna gonna say it. I was uh, Steve's best man and Steve's wedding, and I, I gave a wedding speech where we broke things. I I was talking about Steve and I's experiences and lives, kind of viewed through games, and I gave this. Um, I gave three ways of thinking about it, which I, at the time I called um, rules, chaos, and immersion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess we were going to call it rules or mechanics, um, uncertainty and narrative in this, in this talk. Right. But that, that was going to be kind of our framing. So, so why, what, how, how might we think of a game from the perspective of, you know, rules slash mechanics, uncertainty and narrative? What do those different components mean? Yeah. So the rules are basically, uh, they're the shared collective mechanics by which everyone executes to run the game. So that sounds pretty boring on its own, uh, but to spice it up, you add in elements of uncertainty. So classically, that might be some dice rolling, some card flipping, or even the uncertainty of what is my friend going to do in this situation. Right. Rock, paper, scissors is exactly like that. You know, there's no, there's, it's completely deterministic in theory, but I don't know what, what's happening in your mind. So a classic narrative might be if I, if we were playing together, uh, Chris and I, and they were running away with a game, maybe they're mass, uh, massing victory points left and right, but I managed to exploit uh, something they overlooked, and I won instead. So that would be a classic comeback narrative. Right, but it would probably be also mixed in with some sort of story, like, you know, maybe I was actually like, let's say I was I was taking over like the moon base or something like that and by adding the moon base with the narrative it 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 like in me taking over all these you know rooms in the moon base and you're you're struggling to get you know turn off the sirens or something like that that makes it so that you and i can immerse ourselves effectively in the structure and it's not just so abstract for us right that is a far better example as you can uh, probably notice i am more steeped in the, <laughs> the <laughs> abstract side, side of thing yep. <laughs> Uh, the, yeah, I mean, that is true. So if you listen to the fuzzy and crisp episode, 
you know that um, I tend to be more on the um, kind of goal-oriented approach, which sometimes means I end up a bit fuzzier, and, and Steve ends up being on the how-do-the-systems-work side, which means that Steve often ends up being on the kind of crisper end of things. But, you know, that's good. And so it's interesting that the uncertainty middle space is basically the actual execution of the game. It's the, we don't know what's going to happen next, right? Totally. And the other thing about games is that we could try to do all of this stuff in real life. And in fact, we already do, right? You know, you and I may have many different instances where we end up competing for resources or we're trying to figure out how to collaborate or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But those are comparatively high stakes. And we had on uh, Sumana previously, I forget the exact term that they used, but I think it was something like uh, low stakes, low stakes, it wasn't low stakes environments, but basically low stakes uh, examples where you can try something out. And if it doesn't go badly, it's not that big of a deal. And that's because here in many games, and it's not always true, right? You know, if you're a, cha- a world champion chess player, then this might be your career, whether or not you win the game. But for most of the ones that we sit around and do, um, whether or not we win or lose, we don't have to fear that the rest of our lives depend on it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, in contrast uh, to society, right? Um, so this is a great way to um, play out these ideas in a much safer environment. Mm-hmm. So I think most of the time we kind of spend our lives talking about things that have happened in the space of narrative. We all live in the space of uncertainty of not knowing what's going to happen next, but we try to be able to find out how to cooperative by defining the mechanics and rules of our society. Is that, does that seem about right to you? Yeah, I think so. Okay. And to me, it strikes me that building a society together is effectively us cooperatively being game designers for the world that we live in, then the risk, it seems to be, is when um, somebody thinks that something's not fair, right? So around a game table, if somebody feels like a game is very rigged against them, they might like flip a table. Or punch right. through the table, like in, uh, or, you know, if they're, you know, there's some classic ridiculous videos of somebody just punching straight through a table while losing their crap. Yep. It seems to me that the, the social version of that is a much higher risk. Right. It, when people are upset in society, it can mean revolts, right? We've had some uh, far too painful recent uh, enactments of that with uh, Capital Riot, right? Yeah. And and sometimes it does make sense to when things are really when there doesn't seem to be another way to change things. It does make sense sometimes to go to extreme positions. But one of the dangerous things can that can happen is if you and I are, do have a path in good faith to build something together, mm-hmm. but somebody construct and can construct a narrative by which they make the entire system seem so um, extremely unfair that there may have been a path for us to collaborate, but um, instead we kind of result in a kind of destructive populism, right? Instead of finding a way to build something better together, we end up tearing apart all the stuff that we might mutually value in front of us because, you know, somebody feels like things are unfair and they're ready to flip a table. And like there are good 
emotional human reasons why we're all kind of susceptible to that. That's right. Yeah, it's not that um, it's not that we'll never reach a, a situation where we need to kind of use these um, uh, paths of last resort. But let's say we have a democratic system in place. If people feel strongly enough that that isn't working for them, if that system is broken somehow, they might bypass what could be a much less painful uh, solution and go directly to something that is much more destructive. And and it strikes me, I'm going off a bit, I'll script a bit here with this one, but it strikes me also that one of the things that I see happen a lot that I also spend a lot of time thinking about is I often see in political environments people advocating for some sort of change of law or something like that while they're within power, and then they lose power, and the other side ends up using it to get against them in a much worse and much stronger way, and it, if you're if you're talking about where you want to go, it's very easy to want to do what's. Um, did you ever read Calvin and Hobbes and, and have the Calvin Ball story? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, you want to explain what Calvin Ball is then? Uh, it has been too long. I will not explain it as well. Okay, all right. Then I'll explain it. So it's Calvin Ball is a game um, that where Calvin, um, the kid in this story, is running around with a ball and he just suddenly yells out and changes rules right like oh um trees are you know if you touch a tree you win right and it's just happened because he's passing by a tree at the moment right and so then he yells that out and touches it and he wins uh according to his rule that's constantly changing or he's like you know um you know if you're wearing you know a red pants you already lost right or you're you're you you have to freeze in place right (laughs) and and kelvin will get upset if other people declare rules, right? Calvin doesn't want other people to declare rules. Um, <laughs> but Calvin wants to declare rules for what Calvin feels um, is right at the moment. So something that I like to say is, if you're thinking in terms of system design, whether it's game system design or protocols or um, social systems, you want to design rules that you feel like you'll be able to survive when it's not your turn at the table. Sure. Right. Uh, so what would be some good ways of doing that? Um, well, I think that you kind of have to go through repeated iteration and start thinking about, you know, in a certain sense, you just have to think a few steps ahead kind of to, to figure out what's what kind of the problem is going to be, right? And you have to <laughs> kind of, sometimes what ends up really working in game design is you do play tests, right? So, um, well, I've been talking for a while. Do you, would you like to explain what play tests are and how developers usually use them? Sure. In a play test, and I've done a few of these, essentially you might play with another designer or a fresh group of friends, and basically you try and weed out what doesn't work. First, you try and um, you find out what is fun about the game, what gives... Uh, makes people feel empowered, right? And you try and optimize for that. And then you try and decrease things that lower their level of engagement. So try and decrease the amount of time in between their turns, right? Uh, So that everyone continually has input at the table. 
or uh, make sure things don't completely throw people out of the running, right? So that they can never participate again. Right. So really, I think what, what you're saying also is that you're via playtest, you are able to go through multiple iterations to actually see what doesn't doesn't succeed, which is not maybe not what your expectations were from the outset. But you can kind of accrue these sets of experiences to understand what does and does not seem to actually uh, succeed and then eventually kind of build a better game together that way. Is that right? That's right. Okay, good. So why is it that somebody might feel like the rules are rigged against them, right? Like, so we we said that this is a risk. I I think you have a term that you've said to me repeatedly, (laughs) which is a thing that you worry about. Yeah, one of the things I worry about most is um, snowballing or runaway effects. And that is when a player gets into an advantageous position, maybe due to luck or maybe due to a good move they've made, but then they start to run away with the game. So there is very little that the other players um, around the table can do to prevent that player from winning. And so those players kind of just have to sit idly by as the game moves towards its conclusion with that player inevitably being the winner. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't feel fun because at that point, it feels like, why am I even just sitting here? Right. And I, we used to do this. I used to, um, we used to play battle for Wesnoth and like after a certain point of the game, if you have a really big map, you know, who's going to win or lose. And I, I just try to convince you to sit around Uh, for like another hour while I just crushed you on the map. And one of the experiences I had, so I should have learned about this previously instead of uh, forcing you through that because of (laughs) a game I used to play with my friends. It was an old MS-DOS game. It was called Mind Bombers. And in in a certain sense, this seemed like the perfect kind of laissez-faire capitalist system (laughs) it was basically a map where you were playing from the top down and there were there was dirt and rocks and you were kind of running through the dirt and rocks and it would take longer to dig through rocks than it would through dirt etc and you're picking up treasures and then you could also kill your opponent right so you could buy weapons and everybody started out with a very small amount of money and you could spend it on either better digging tools or better weapons right Mm -hmm. you could then on the next turn use your money that you got from the last one to buy more you know like good digging equipment and better weapons and stuff like this and in in a certain sense in in american society we have this idea of um kind of you know everybody has an equal place at the starting line so wherever you ended up that was fair right and this is like the perfect version of it you started out you and your friends started out exactly at the same place on the starting line but mm-hmm. but what would be really annoying is that you would the game would let you play an infinite number of times and whoever won the first three to five times would win almost all of the future games because they would be able to spend so much money on digging equipment that they would like cut through rock like water and they and the other person would just be like squeaking along you know between just trying to get their way out of the dirt and then you know the person who had been winning could just run up behind them drop a nuke behind them and then just run away and blow up that entire part of the board right and there was nothing you could do at that point but you know if you were the the kid who was winning you would be like oh come on it is a fair game sure that's the best yeah this is the best game there there why wouldn't you want to play this 
right? That's right. It's absolutely fair. You know, I won that money fair and square. So let's let's keep going, right? Right. So so what's maybe an antidote then? So this is a clear example of a runaway effect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what's an antidote to runaway effects? And could you give me maybe an example of something that uses that system? Sure. I mean, the clearest anecdote uh, would be some sort of counter pressure, right? Something that counters the runaway effect and helps other players remain involved in the game and maybe let them catch up a bit. So a really great example of that would be the game Power Grid, which is maybe more explicitly economical. But in that game, there is a mechanic where, let's say you are behind in the game, you then get first dibs at um, resources and the best power plants, because you're building power plants in in that connect several cities. So you would get the uh, first dibs at maybe you would pick out the fancy new nuclear power plant wherever, where everyone else would be stuck with uh, coal. Right. So because it was basically a bidding game, right? Yes. So so you got first bid, literally. Right. And that that seems good in a certain sense, but I think we both know people who have found that frustrating in that there was no real narrative reason. Right. For for you to not for you to be, you know, you're behind and it doesn't seem to reflect the way that um this the systems we usually live in works. Like the person who usually somebody who is much more rich is able to kind of get their way at the first bid. Right. right? They're better connected. Yeah. Um, but it did make for a better game. But you know, so Steve and I like a podcast called Ludology. Ludology, right? And Jeff Engelstein, who is one of the co hosts of the show for a long time, he had he had a criticism. I'm, I'm trying to think of how he phrased it. I think it was he he was saying that he it, there was a button there and he really wanted to press that button, but he felt like he was getting punished for pressing it. Right. So by pressing the button, that would mean getting more and more victory points, building more and more power plants and getting farther ahead. But the catch up mechanic was so strong that it pulled him back below water and he would actually lose because other people had leveraged that catch-up mechanic. That's right. So there's another example of this that I think is maybe worth bringing up. I think the part of the problem there is that that catch-up mechanic, it kind of didn't add anything narratively and it kind of didn't add anything else interesting to the game, right? It almost felt like a moral disincentive, right? Like you're trying to expand your power empire as much as possible and basically be as efficient, be the best you can be. But there is this disincentive that if you try and go too far, you actually get punished for playing well. And that's how it felt to people. Yeah. I mean, I like the game and I understand why the mechanic is there, but I also understand why it feels frustrating. I think an example of a mechanic, and this is referring to, I guess, another proprietary video game here, but I think it's really interesting. There's the fighting game Smash Brothers, and if you've taken enough damage in the game, you're very susceptible to to being hit off the, you know, basically knocked out of the arena and dying. But as you pick up more and more damage, your character basically starts smoking. And uh, it's called, and they are able to do more damage, and that's called the rage effect. And mm-hmm. I guess the generalization of this is called the comeback mechanic. But I don't know. In some ways, this felt a little bit more fair to me. Uh, do you? What, what do you think? I I agree. I think it's because 
it's again that concept of pushing the button you're never really disincentivized for doing damage. They're always closer to getting thrown off the edge. You, Like you said before, if you get enough damage, a little bit of knockback uh, might just throw you off the edge. But the player who has taken all that damage, then by them being stronger, it adds it adds more uncertainty. Now you're on you're playing the game on a nice edge where either player could go off at any moment. Um, so you're never disincentivized from hitting someone, but it always keeps the game exciting. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. There are other kinds of counter pressure. And and actually one of the most interesting ones is we mentioned that games seem to be low stake environments because they usually end in not in like a, a shorter time than your lifetime, right? Right. I mean, I guess if you keel over in the middle of a match, that might not be true. But usually, like if you're playing a game of chess, the game of chess ends and then you could play another game of chess and you the, the board gets reset. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of games, you know, have something short enough like this. You know, yeah, you might go up and down in the ladder, but for whatever next game you're going to be playing against somebody, you'll at least not start off at a lower risk by being put in that match right Mm -hmm. right so this could be a sports game you could be playing lacrosse and at the end of the game um sure someone someone's a winner but the next next game starts at zero zero um it even on a societal level it could apply to things like jubilees um potentially the forgiveness of student loan debt right Mm -hmm. now some people actually have made the argument that maybe we should do a society-wide jubilee of just all debt and maybe even do them regularly. And mm-hmm. something something that strikes me as weird about it is that a kind of surprising one-time jubilee seems like it it feels like it could be really good and have um and it almost feels like no downsides um if you could figure out how to do it and keep society running. Now, I'm not that's actually an exaggeration. There are probably quite a few downsides, but it, it I can definitely see the narrative for that. But it strikes me that the challenge is if you have a system where you're expecting a reset every few years, then, <laughs> so, then if there's something where I'm normally doing something that would involve risk, like, you know, maybe I'm deciding whether or not to give you a loan. And I might be like, well, there's going to be a reset, you know, like in in a month. So I'm not going to give it to you now. Right. That's kind of the perverse incentives or what feel like perverse incentives in Power Grid, right? Where there's this kind of uh, catch up uh, mechanic, something that helps people out who have fallen under extreme pressure. But it's something that can be exploited. Um, And for instance, the best power grid players will exploit those mechanics. And I think that doesn't sit right with a lot of people, perhaps myself included. Yeah, like I actually understand the argument for debt forgiveness. I think we'll return to that. We, We kind of have this in society with social safety nets in general. If you end up being born into extreme wealth, then you're able to take advantage of your extreme wealth. But if you're born into extreme poverty, the the idea is at least you aren't in a situation, hopefully, where it's impossible to climb out of that. <laughs> now, of course, whether or not that's actually true in reality, that's at least the idea of having a social safety net. Right. I'm, I'm not sure how 
if you want to get into how many holes there might be uh, in that net or how far the rungs are apart. Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not actually sure. I'm not going to claim that I'm actually particularly good at figuring out how to construct these nets, right? That's actually not really my area of expertise. But what I do think is interesting is that there is a conceptual test called Rawls's Veil of Ignorance that at least demonstrates to us that people want these. And the generalized idea of that is, you know, if you're trying to draw a graph of what you think society should be, the people, if they're drawing it from their present position in society, people who are richer should be like, well, the people who are richer should be able to, you know, just have whatever they want. And, you know, the people who are poor, that's their fault. And if people who are poor, you know, tend to just actually say everybody should have the exactly the same thing across the board. Um, but if people put on what's this kind of veil of ignorance type scenario, in general, the graph that people draw tends to permit a certain amount of um, people to be able to gain more things in response to having done well in some way. But there has to be a minimum net so that somebody who is in a circumstance that is bad still has the opportunity to basically bounce back. That seems to be what people have in this idea of this veil of ignorance as if they were wearing a blindfold. But I don't know. It's it seems weird to me because it's kind of hard to pin that on game design in some way. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think there are instances of that in game design. Uh, you can have minimum levels of income. You can have mechanics that allow players uh, farther behind to accelerate if they play well. Maybe they have a master of probability, and if they play their cards just right, they could end up winning in the end. Mm-hmm. I think we probably need to do like a completely separate episode on this. But one thing that I think is interesting just to kind of drop here and place a pin in for the future is just how common it is to see something along the lines of money reinvented in these games over and over again and how players seem to want something like that. Um, As in terms of it seems more convenient in a game that has multiple conflicting resources to have kind of a generalized resource (laughs) point system um and so but then again that's not necessarily optimizing for fun a good indicator of what society should be like because sometimes you're trying to set up conflict for entertainment but i think that that's kind of a pin where i think you and i should return to at a a future time yes that sounds great in the meanwhile uh, what do you think about the kind of differences between competitive and cooperative games and how that can apply to society. Well, would you like to give some examples of what competitive games are versus what cooperative games are? Uh, Sure. Let's just throw out a couple games here. So, um, you know, a classic uh, competitive game might be uh, Risk, right? Uh, The close cousin of the game Diplomacy and uh, Proven Breaker of Friendships. Uh, that's about as uh, competitive as you can get. It You have a world map in front of you, and you know maybe you have six different factions, each controlled by a player, and they, they fight each other with literal armies moving into each other's uh, countries. Um, and uh, the f- player who wins world domination wins. Right. And, that, 
at the other extreme example, uh, another game with a world map might be the the popular co- cooperative game Pandemic. A little bit funny where, in this moment in history, but yes. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, almost unfortunate timing. Uh, it it kind of hit its peak of popularity at a very relevant time. Um, but essentially, uh, you might have four players and you're essentially playing the role of the CDC or the World Health Organization, again, with a world map. But instead, now you have a common enemy which would be disease. You are trying to control outbreaks of disease across the world and prevent the disease diseases from eradicating human life. Um, and that is something that everyone can kind of rally together and fight the common enemy rather than each other. And that's interesting because in the general case, what I guess Morgan is not on this episode, but we will say that uh, Morgan and I famously cannot play competitive games i think we've already said this on the podcast a couple of times that where some of our biggest fights have been over scrabble right mm-hmm. and risk is like the worst right because it already destroys friendships right but but pandemic has been great for us because you know the you're you're fighting together against a global enemy right like the, the game itself has is the enemy right it's not like <laughs> it's not an enemy but the enemy has become abstracted as something that you as a team are fighting against and Therefore, it's we don't have to get upset at each other if somebody does something that the other one perceives of as incredibly rude. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of the extreme of dehumanization. Uh, we normally talk about that as a bad thing. In this particular scenario, it's um, it is obvious that these uh, uh, these viruses are not human and. Um, are not in the favor of human life or life in general. And it it forms a a common enemy that everyone can rally against without really feeling too bad ethically. Right. So Pandemic must be a perfect game then, right? Because everybody's going to get along and therefore it has no social problems. Well, okay. I, I have definitely played this with some groups before where this has not gone over quite so well because there uh, there can be problems where let's say there is a player who is maybe more assertive or self-assured or maybe better at the game but yeah, maybe they've just played it a lot they've just played it a lot right so um pandemic is a game of open information um at least theoretically everyone if they're playing optimally will share what cards that they have in the, their hands with everyone else, tell everyone else what they have. And then a quarterback, uh, someone who is good or selfish or at the game could just direct, Hey, you should do this. You should do this. You should do this. You should do this. And essentially they end up playing the game almost all by themselves. Have you ever experienced that? Uh, absolutely. I have. Um, and in fact, there was a friend's house that I went over to and we we definitely experienced this. I was like, oh, I think I'm going to move this gear. And he was like, no, 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 no. And his mom was there, too. And she was just nodding along like, yes, this is, you know, he's correct. Don't Just listen to him. Like, And he's like, I've played this game hundreds and hundreds of times. And that is a completely foolish move. No, Chris, don't do that thing. Do this other thing. And I'm like, OK, I guess I'm doing that thing. And then one of my other one of my other friends 
um, called me up and was like, oh, you mentioned that you went and played Pandemic. And, and like, I had fun, right? Like, it was still fun for me, um, even though that can be pretty frustrating for people. But that's partly because I was just wanted, I was looking forward to hanging out with my friend. <laughs> but a, another friend said, was like, yeah, um, after you mentioned you went and played Pandemic, uh, I went over to his house and it was kind of relaxing because once I realized that we were all just basically proxy players of our mutual friend here. Um, I just opened a beer and sat back and just kind of zoned out. And it was and, and like clearly uh, myself and my other friend were able to interpret the experience in such a way that that we weren't too bothered by it. But you can see why a lot of other people might be bothered by it, because in a different way, this still feels like your agency is being taken away mm-hmm. because somebody else is telling you that you don't know what you're doing. Right. So quarterbacking has some kind of parallels to society where there is some governing body maybe that is making a large amount of decisions for you and maybe causing um, decreased engagement on your part. Um, Are there like other alternatives to that? Uh, Well, wait, wait. before we get to the alternatives, I actually that you just brought up a great point. I actually want to expand on an example of that. Um, So. I mentioned that people seem to reproduce and keep wanting this idea of this very generic resource abstraction system over and over (laughs) again. And this is why, um, personally, I think that money is not evil. The hyper-focus on the pursuit of money as an end is a mistake, (laughs) but I don't think you can escape money. And one of the things is that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty lefty and I know a bunch of really lefty people and who um, and it's interesting because I look at my, you know, the comments they're making on my social media feed and I will see simultaneous things saying, you know, money is evil, but then also saying getting really upset about um, government based food stamp programs that specify which items of food you are and aren't allowed to buy. And they're like, mm-hmm. just let people buy whatever food they want, right? Mm-hmm. And what they're really expressing there is give people the agency to make their own decision because each agent in the system has its own information about what its needs are. Mm-hmm. And this kind of and the the central planning approach ignores the needs of the individual agents. Mm-hmm. So even if we want that social safety net, we still want it in a way that preserves agency. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, I mean, I guess I went kind of on a tangent there, but I, I think that your your observation there it had a strong parallel. Um, so, so yes, you asked me what um, if there are alternative solutions, but I'm actually just going to ask you. So, Steve, why do you love the game Hanabi so much? <laughs> okay, yeah, so... Uh... You know me pretty well. So you know that Hanabi is uh, my favorite board game of all time, my, myself and my wife. Could uh, you explain what Hanabi is? Han- yeah, narratively first. Yeah, so Hanabi is a game where uh, the goal is you're a, basically a bunch of discombobulated um, uh, administers of a fireworks show. And you are trying to figure out how to coordinate Nate, this firework display without accidentally um, firing off um, 
uh, a firework on the ground and causing a giant explosion. I've got my gunpowder over here, and I've got some paper wrappers over here and some fuses over here, and they don't all fit together, but we're trying to all rush to get it done. Exactly, and you want to end the game in this giant, beautiful, big finale uh, with the biggest, uh, the biggest fireworks at the end. And mechanically, how that kind of ties in is... Um, it's simply the simplest way to say it is multiplayer solitaire, and that sounds really boring. Um, but <laughs> it also sounds contradictory. It sounds totally contradictory. It's also so not you mean solitaire is in terms of the specific game of solitaire that people think of, not as in a game that you play alone. Right. It's a complete opposite way of how that uh, term is normally used. But uh, together, collectively, you're trying to um, operate a solitary goal which is to create this beautiful fireworks display. And you are laying down, you're laying down your cards in ascending order, ascending suit, just like the game Solitaire. And there are three actions uh, that you can take in your turn. Uh, do you want to take a whack at it, Chris? I'm not, I don't remember the, the rules off the top of my head as well as you, but let me try. So sure. you've got a set of points that represent time that you can yep. spend. And you've got a fuse by which if you that represents your mistakes and if the muse the fuse goes all the way down the the thing explodes but the turns you can take uh that the, the moves you can take on any turn are you can either tell somebody some information about their hand so i could say steve you've got a green card and i'd wiggle it and a green card and i'd wiggle the other one right, right. And now you i know don't that, know what's in my hand crucially you don't right? know what's oh so this is the really key thing is that you're holding a hand in front of you and it's faced away from you. <laughs> so everyone else around the table is able to see everyone else's hand, but they can't see their own. Yeah, Chris, you can see what's in my hand. I can see what's in your hand, but we can't see our own hands. And we have to play based on not knowing our own hands, right? So, so Yeah, so I'm basically like, oh my gosh, there's a green one on the table and I really need Steve to put down a green two and Steve should know that one of these two greens, based off of previous information Steve knew, is or that one of these previous one of these cards is a two. So if I also tell Steve that this thing's green, Steve will be able to figure it out. But I can't <laughs> say all of that. All I can say is that this card's green and this card's green. And then you can be like, huh, and like rearrange your hand so that you can help memorize some information by like turning some cards upside down or like yep. off to the side and stuff like that. So I can convey information to you, but it's only partial information based off of what I think you know. Right. So that's the first, sorry, that's the first um, thing that you can do. And the second one is you can discard cards from your hand, but they might be really critical cards mm -hmm. is the first risk. Like some of them are cards that only appear once. Um, and then uh, if you discard a card, you get more time. But on the <laughs> other hand, by discarding a card, you're also lowering the amount of cards left in the de the draw deck. By the draw time the draw deck ends, the game's over because you ran out of time. Yes. Um, so the and then the third action you can do is you can you can play a card. What? What's that? You oh, can... draw a card. That's right. Um, play a card. Oh no, play a card. That's right. Okay. So if once if Steve has figured out that this is a green two, Steve can play it to place the green two. Mm-hmm. Okay, so those are all the rules. Now everybody knows how to play Hanabi. <laughs> so what is beautiful? What's beautiful about this game? What prevents it? 
What prevents quarterbacking and what gives players agency? Well, I don't know. You tell me. Um, it seems to me that couldn't I, um, out of great frustration, say, Steve, you've got a green card and a green card. <laughs> well, uh, and certainly players do. <laughs> and certainly players do. We had we had another couple uh, we who said they were really good at Hanabi, and then we learned that basically they won Hanabi by just cheating and pointing to the card they wanted to play rather than <laughs> actually saying the piece of information they're trying to uh, impart. Okay, so I think I know what you're trying to get me to say, which is that there is not total available information to all players. There's like different information that each player has. Right. So the fact that the information is not known to all the players means each of the players have individual agency and that there's not a realistic or efficient way for someone to quarterback and dictate whatever everyone else should do because no one person knows the optimal move for that other player. Now, one thing that I notice about these three games we've talked about, Risk, Pandemic, and Hanabi, is the way that players feel at the end of each one. Yeah. So Risk, I played this a lot in high school, and it resulted in deep rifts between my friends. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, people would be really cranky each other. We'd really backstab each other and rub it into each other's face and, you know make the entire coffee shop weirded out by one of us being like, ha like, look what I did to you. Right. right. And, um, and, you, and that you was win risk by lying essentially. Right. There's, by, it is vindictive, but yeah, by being vindictive, not necessarily lying, but by being, um, a schemy, horrible person that's, you know, an imperialist taking over the world. Yeah. Whereas pandemic, you're all working together towards a common goal. And I've almost never had a game of pandemic, that's not ended in a hug. Now, now <laughs> noticeably, since we've introduced Tanabi here, um, I've talked about this difference between risk ending in fa- friendships ending and uh, pandemic ending in hugs before. But I, I'm actually realizing right now that Hanabi um, is either people, everybody ending in a hug or everybody blaming one of the other players for not understanding <laughs> the information they were trying to convey. <laughs> yeah, every game design has its downsides. But but I I think that um, I mean if some people listening to this this may have actually heard me talk about this in other talks I think it's really interesting that one of these games ends in social conflict and one of them ends in um, like hugs almost every time but and and I had a friend point out to me what would happen if you put mandatory hugs in the rule booklet because nothing neither of these yeah. rule booklets say stopping friends or hug. But if you if if pandemic's rule book said mandatory hugs, you have to hug now, it it would I wouldn't want to hug. <laughs> I know, I would feel awful. You know, there were a bunch of games in the nineties, I feel like, uh some social party games that tried to do this, and it's kind of fallen out of fashion, but they would they would have cards and um I draw a card. And it would say, make a funny face, right? And basically, I try and make a funny face, and then everyone laughs, theoretically. And you keep everyone keeps drawing cars to try and make them be funny. But I think those games fell out of favor because it felt very forced. Like, 
uh, comedy is something that kind of evolves from our social situations. Um, it, you can help it along, but when it feels mandatory, it doesn't, it doesn't evoke those same emotions for people. I don't think it really connects. Yeah. I think that we see this in a lot of television and movies and books too, right? Like there's a, some sort of story and sometimes the writer really wants to drive home a point but they can't really figure out how to shape it into the story. So they just kind of force it. And that's oftentimes when the audience disconnects, right? Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't feel like it kind of emerged from the story. And ah, I think we just hit the key term, emergent behavior. Yeah. So what is emergence behavior? Um, well, emergent behavior is when you have a core set of rules and something interesting kind of flows out of it you might say like a narrative well yeah in a certain sense a narrative kind of grows out of it but one of the clearest simplest examples of it i think is conway's game of life like this is a game if you never looked at conway's game of life go look up examples of it or mm-hmm. even download and run a version of it because there's a million implementations it's really just a quote-unquote game where you're having some alive cells and dead cells, and there's just a few simple rules in the the, the system, but all of these beautiful patterns emerge. And okay. some things walk around the screen, some things do all these things, and people spend their lives finding all the patterns from like four rules. And you said the word walk, right? That is uh, maybe... I can't think of the term. It's not anamorphic, but you're assigning like a human anthropomorphic. Be- anthropomorphic. There we go. You're assigning like a human activity or an animalistic activity to essentially what are these like five or six blobs moving across the screen, right? Yeah, and there is nothing in the rules that said that there was going to be something that looks like it was walking, but that's what I see, and that's something that comes out of it. <laughs> and and I, I actually want to back up just a moment about the mandatory hugs thing and tie this back together is that I think you're right that you're saying that there's something about narrative here and us valuing narrative having emergent properties. And I think the reason for that is somehow connected to agency. And I think it's more clear in the hug situation than it is in the Conway's game of life. But (laughs) this is interesting, connecting this to like social system design, a lot of the times our temptation is we see a problem in society and we say, well, we don't want that anymore. Mm-hmm. So we're going to write a new set of policies that prevent that. But sometimes the right way to do it is to actually, instead of mandating hugs, designing some lower level, simpler rules where hugs come out of them, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. So now that we have recognized, though, that these that more complex behavior, emergent behavior, can come out of simple rules. Could you maybe give me another example that's less abstract than, or at least actually, actually, I guess more abstract, but in like a better narrative way (laughs) than Conway's Game of Life? Uh, Sure. I mean, there's a really famous example uh, with Dwarf Fortress, and we can add a link to it. And it is, it's a case where there was a bug in the game where essentially what would happen is you'd have these pubs where all these dwarves would go and drink and they'd spill a little bit of alcohol on the floor and you had cats in the game. So the cats would walk through the alcohol and they'd get a little bit of it on their paws. 
And there was some bug in the game. I think it might have been like the intensity of how uh, the alcohol or how much was on their fur, something around those lines. And the cats would lick the alcohol from their paws and they would get drunk. So you'd have a bunch of drunk cats just roaming around your kind of dwarven kingdom as they meander through the bars. I think a lot of people got a lot of kick out of that. Yeah. Um, and in a very similar but sadder variation, you told me a story from, I don't remember where you heard it, and then we were talking about this beforehand and you remembered it. I think you were telling me about some game design podcast or article or something, and they were talking about one of these kinds of games that had a lot of social simulation in it, and therefore it had a lot of interesting emergent behavior. And, and the the one that involved like the soldiers and alcohol that that really struck me do you want to tell tell that story as you remember it yeah so it is kind of sad when you think about it it um it so happened uh there would be soldiers in this game and they would go off to war and they would fight think you're kind of age of empires to kind of fighting um and when they came back um they would have uh depression value um and well, and let's say why, because they saw their friends die. Because they saw their friends die, yeah. So they saw their friends die uh, out on the battlefield, so they'd come back with this uh, this kind of scarring, and they'd go to the bar to kind of increase their happiness stat, because that's what uh, one of the easy ways of doing that. And they would drink, and they would develop alcoholism. And this is... And you ended up with soldiers with... PTSD and alcoholism, you know, in this game, and it wasn't planned. There were yeah, just you a... had war. You had war as a thing, right? You had people seeing their friends die. Yeah, you and had you... alcohol and depressants, and yeah, yeah, and 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 PTSD, and well, we're gonna have to add a content warning to this episode about this, but uh, yeah. but uh, um, but PTSD and 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 alcoholism in a very realistic way flowing out of this thing. And I told this story to somebody, I don't remember who, and they, they, they were thinking about it and they said, it's amazing that we can design systems like this. We can see how this happens, even without us making it happen in the system. <laughs> and yet we can't figure out how to de- prevent it in our own world or change our world so that we don't have these sad things happen. And I think there's a lot to unpack there, but but I thought that was a heck of a lot, heck of an observation. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know if it's the type of thing you can really unpack satisfactory, satisfactorily. But I guess at the very least, I think these games um, uh, sometimes um, having some sort of simulation element or some sort of emergent behavior this particular story, at least for me, helps develop a sense of empathy, you know, for why these problems occur. And it helps me think about these problems in terms of the systems and the incentives involved. That's true. Rather than placing blame on the individuals. Yeah, I think that's true for me, too. Um, It's not that we don't hold individuals responsible for their behavior. But when I think about where I expend my energy, where I prefer to expend my energy is on changing systems so that 
the things that make me disappointed happen less and the things that I like happen more. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great way to put it. So we've been kind of walking into the narrative side and it, I guess not, not at all unintentionally. We kind of opened up in the mechanic side and kind of walked our way to the narrative and probably have not spent as much time in the uncertainty as I'd like, but you know, there's limits to the amount of time we have, but where I would like to talk about political elements that are connected to narratives. Cause I think that that's a lot of what politics is when people say, Oh, I'm really interested in politics. In a certain <laughs> sense, they're really interested in following the stories and being invested in the stories of politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, I actually, if you could just keep expanding there, I, I kind of want to hear your line of thought. Okay. Let's let's talk about how much we have observed. I mean, so it's a common theme on this, ep- on this show that we talk about agency, right? Um, and sometimes the story, we mentioned already at the beginning that the feeling that the rules are rigged against you is, can lead to really bad political situations, right? Mm-hmm. If it's, and, and usually what you want to do I'm not blaming in this particular instance saying when people when people feel like the rules are rigged against them that that's their fault. Oftentimes that's a signal that we should do something so that they don't feel that way. Right. Um, but uh, what and, and it's also not a guarantee that say that they're right or that it's fair either. Right. Right. But um, it's at least a signal. Um, yeah. But we if we value agency, one of the things that's interesting is we're, we've been talking about narrative. As in terms of it being this, you know, on the polar end of the mechanics side, right? Mm-hmm. And um, if you, but one of the things that's interesting to me is that the say the phrase "the rules are rigged against me" is a narrative about the mechanics. Yes. And if we look, you and I have talked about the game Love Letter, which at one point I said to you, I was like, I really like playing the game Love Letter because it always feels fast and exciting. Mm-hmm. And um, there's so much strategy there, and you you were like, "Well, I mean, <laughs> uh, w- there's a link uh, we'll add to on um, this one as well. It turns out, and it's a beautiful minimalistic game. I, it only has like 15 cards, so it, it speaks to me quite a bit. But it turns out in this game, um, most of your choices, um, over 50 percent of your choices, are just the illusion of choice." So in this particular game, um, at any point in time on your turn, you'll have two cards in hand and you play one. So it's beautiful that you have one major decision on your turn. It turns out, though, for half of all the decisions you make in the game, there is only one legal play. And often there is only one right play. So each decision feels very impactful, but mathematically... um, there is actually very little agency there. So one of the things that's interesting about this is that we spend a lot of time talking about agency. And I, I actually feel kind of crappy, admittedly, pointing this out. But I think it's true. A lot of whether or not people are willing to accept our systems is not whether or not they have agency, but whether or not they feel like they have agency. Mm-hmm. And... As social system designers, you should pay close attention to that 
but it's it's also feels dissatisfying because it it it's dissatisfying to me when I realize that something is really not connecting like that. Mm-hmm. But it does it it does strike me how important it is to recognize it. So what is it about Love Letter? Is it the level of involvement, how how frequently and often each player is asked to be involved? I think that's probably a large portion of it. It for whatever reason it's got a storyline. It has a narrative, right? Yeah. It has this narrative that you are trying to sneak your way through basically this uh kingdoms I guess a political inner circle of like a, a a kingdom, right? And try to win the hand of the princess by, you know, talking to this person and that person who all have connections. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the things about that is that it feels when you're playing the game like like you're really taking part in that story, I think. And it feels like when a win or a loss happened, it was kind of breathtaking. Like you did something really clever or like, oh, if only you didn't see that coming. And also each game is really short. Yeah. Like super short. Right. So the space for me to get really upset is not that large. That's right. It is. It even has player elimination, um, which from a societal standpoint is not good. But the fact that you have such frequent resets, um, short experience makes it very tolerable. I mean, rounds are often as short as like 30 seconds for an entire version. And then an entire game is just a a repeated version of this. So entire games are often just like two minutes. So yeah, so so part of it is the narrative um, of where you feel like you're you're going. And but I think that um, we can stretch that narrative part of how whether or not people feel like they're taking part of something to the extreme with Candyland. Mm. So I'm guessing many but not all of our players have played Candyland. So um I guess the high level description of it is uh, so Steve, I'm gonna have you check me on this. Yep. High level description, cute cartoon characters. <laughs> and, yes, check. and a map that you're wandering through. So that feels like some sort of structure. Some sort of adventure, yep. And it's got um it's kind of the it basically has a deck of cards that you're drawing from that tells you what you're going to do next, right? Yeah, so you flip over a card, it has a color on it, and then it says what space you move to. You move to the next space of that color. And it turns out, you know, when when I think when each of us were a kid and we played this, we would like will the deck. We were like, oh, if I can just will the deck to bring me up a blue, then... I can move five spaces ahead and I can get, I can get in front of Chris uh, as long as I don't uh, pull that purple and get sent to the plum swamp or whatever oh, it's Mr. called. Mr. Plumpy, Mr. Plumpy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and so the, the, we used to play this with my younger sister when she was like, I think like two or three even. And we were, and she loved it because she was quote unquote, really good at Candyland, hmm. Right. And she's not a game designer, so because she's two or three, um, but she felt really empowered, right? And in fact, it wasn't until I was an adult that I was listening to a podcast episode about Candyland, once again on Ludology, um, and we'll link to it in the show notes, where um, they were pointing out that, oh yeah, you actually have no agency in that game whatsoever. Once the deck is 
sorted, that's what's happening, mm-hmm. right? You can just basically you can just like kind of thumb through the deck and you'll know who's going to win. Mm-hmm. They don't have any involvement in the game, but it feels like you have involvement. And it, I guess kind of like tic-tac-toe, there's a certain point where you kind of get this sense that there's no real point in playing this game anymore. Right. But it's interesting how long it can take for people to get to that way. And that also when you ask people to make board games, this is one of the things they pointed out in the episode, he, he kind of defended Candyland by saying, when you ask people to make board games, most people will reinvent a version of Candyland. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are there's a spatial um, element to it. It, it. That narrative feels um, like an adventure. There's uncertainty uh, that the mechanics do provide. Um, but it is, I mean, it, that's something for me to chew on, I think, is how a game can be fun, at least to a certain point of your life, and to uh, maybe you realize that and learn about the game that you do not have agency it can feel very engaging oh man that's the nash equilibrium episode yeah (laughs) (laughs) we're giving spoilers again um so but before we get let's let's not walk into the nash equilibrium space and let's instead connect this with the political story stuff i was saying again Mm -hmm. right when we were planning out this episode we actually did it with our friends uh kate and ricky and they we we basically had this little salon where we um, just met up online and just kind of talked through this entire thing. So we should thank Kate and Ricky for kind of giving us um, this overview. And Ricky had actually spent some time on the previous one of these little salons that we did talking about populism. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Ricky was saying about populism and, you know, and so on was saying, you know, um, there's a, there's a, for the most part, we kind of focus on the dangers of destructive populism, but there can also be, you can kind of channel populism for, for, for the ability to make changes, but there is this element where people sometimes misunderstand what, when a populist policy is being advocated, what's really being advocated. So the, um, most economists basically think that canceling the debt uh, in terms of student debt and stuff like that and having a jubilee and stuff like that, that it's like a bad idea. Like they they run the simulations. They're like, oh, this is going to be bad. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that Ricky said that I thought was pretty interesting is that they've misunderstood in that to a certain extent what's being practiced by proposing such a thing and advocating such a thing is not actually whether or not it's a good idea, mm-hmm. but to give somebody a narrative to counter the feeling in their life that things were unfair to them. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do that, a populist approach might still happen, but instead it'll happen with a more dangerous trickier authoritarian kind of populism that um could be really really bad and you know for i know some listeners to the show will think well i don't know canceling dead stuff seems like authoritarian populism too but there are definitely much scarier versions of populism out there but i don't know there i wonder i definitely think there's something there 
in that it's important for us to build into these systems actual agency. So you're not just playing Candyland. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important for us also to give players the feeling of agency, whether or not they actually have a lot of agency in the game and the story. It's important for them to feel involved. Yeah. I, I totally agree there. I have one of Jeff Engelstein's books, um, next to me here. And, uh, it is a comprehensive encyclopedia of uh, the mechanics by which you can kind of play uh, to people's behavioral psychology. Um, and it's... Um, for, for game designers, not for, just to manipulate people. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. I, uh, to a good end. It, but it is uh, what is mathematically equivalent is not equivalent from a narrative perspective and can cause very different psychological reactions in terms of a player's engagement with the game. Yeah, I actually just want to talk about one of Jack Engelstein, and I believe he's the one who came up with it, his favorite distinctions in terms of mechanics that I think we should should bring up before we start kind of summarizing and talk um, about, you know, kind of the flow here. Um, He had... He has these two contrasting versions of randomness that players experience and a strong preference for one versus the other. So his phrase is input randomness versus output randomness. And he strongly encourages and prefers input randomness and expresses that he thinks players do too. Input randomness is kind of the one that people are more commonly familiar with. Um, If you've played a lot of role-playing games, for instance... You're going to swing the sword at the monster and find out whether or not the sword hits. So you roll, you say, I'm attacking the monster. And you have a sense ahead of time of how likely it is to hit that monster. And you roll the die and you find out whether or not you hit. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But input randomness is where you draw a series of cards that in that are all deterministic in their behaviors. But um, you don't know which cards you're going to draw. And then it's up to the player to choose what to do with the stuff that they were given. Right. So this is the type of input that is maybe interesting in the game. Well, I guess both are uh, in the game of poker, right? You have a certain amount of output randomness, just how the cards are dealt. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But I think what people engage with, if they engage with poker, is the bluffing aspect, the um, engaging with the other players around the table and playing against them, trying to outplay them, trying to call them on their bluffs. Um, And that is the most engaging type of randomness because you're learning about not just the game, but the other player across from you, right? Yeah, so this is what's really interesting about poker is that the reason people like poker and why poker appears in TV shows all the time is there's a strong narrative component to it, right? How well can I read you? And <laughs> so it's just such a good fit in all sorts of TV shows where two player, uh, two opponent opposing characters in the show or even cooperating in some cases, but in this particular case, opposing, right? <laughs> they are trying to show off how much they understand each other by playing poker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
and therefore they're reading each other's face. And this is a certain, this is a large portion of the story. But but there's a large irony that you've pointed out to me here, which is in the show, the best players are who can read each other really well. But what what's reality? Right. Well, in reality, if you're playing poker optimally, you are going to be trying to put on a poker face. And uh, I believe uh, Kate had in our salon, she had described this as or she had alluded to a signal to noise radio, uh, ratio, not necessarily in those terms, but you are trying to produce more noise than you do signal. And what that means is the game is encouraging you to give no information to the other players and is almost stifling your ability to understand each other. So a good strategy in the game actually ruins the narrative. Like right. the ultimate poker face is computer face. Yes, that's right. I mean, but on the other hand, if the computer has a face a facial recognition software and can display no face of its own but read the others, then that computer is going to be in really good shape. That's right. So we've kind of talked through mechanics and narrative quite a bit. But before we get to thinking about everything, like before we just sign off, I want to say... Where does this uncertainty come in? Because we've spent so much time on the mechanic side, and then we kind of closed out on the narrative side. So where is uncertainty? Right. So uh, I think uncertainty, um, actually, you have said this, and I just love this phrase. Uncertainty is kind of at the intersection of mechanics and narrative. So you can have mechanics that generate emergent behavior and it's something you are uncertain of you don't know what is going to happen and from that we can derive a narrative um, and that that compels us to be um, involved in the game yeah and i think i actually took this from the eight kinds of fun paper which we had an episode about before and in that paper aside from talking about the eight kinds of fun they talked about how designers and players come in from the opposite side. So the designers come in from the rules side and they're designing this whole thing as in terms of all the structural mechanics. And, you know, to in a certain sense, you can file off all the stuff like, you know, um, well, it doesn't really matter. You could build the same game and put it in a Western setting or a sci-fi setting and who cares, right? But from a player perspective, they're entering through the narrative or the immersion perspective and both of them meet in the middle at the game the designer comes through one side the player comes through one side the game's in the middle in another sense mechanics are on one side narrative is on the other side and uncertainty is in the middle so i'm going to posit one more thing which (laughs) is that i think that we can apply this to society as well governance (laughs) is on one side citizens are on the other and they meet in the middle in society. Ooh, so governance is kind of setting the rules. N- citizens are applying their narrative, and at the intersection of those is the society where uh, citizens are interacting with the r- uh, rules set up by the governing bodies. That's right. And the reason why both the game and the society sit in the middle along with uncertainty, because it seems really weird. Why would the game and society sit in the middle with uncertainty is because of the way that we're immersed in time, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we have uh, limited information around us. We don't have the ability to reason everything perfectly. So that's uncertainty. Yeah, and we're just trying to live our lives. Right. Wade in a way in the rules of society best we can. Um, and sometimes we bump against harsh edges every once in a while. Yep. Well, very good. I don't know if we'll succeed in making a notch in the social design of the world at all, but maybe we will by talking about this. But at the very least, I think this was a pretty fun way of thinking about things for you and me. And, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe somebody will have some good food for thought about how they kind of view social systems. And maybe we can even encourage some people to play some more fun games. <laughs> yeah, if, uh, I'd love to hear about any stories people have that are relevant to this. Yeah, this has been great. Thanks for having me on yet again. I feel honored. Yeah, thanks for being here. All right, Steve, I guess at that point, let's just say uh, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, and Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC01.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social on twitter as at foss and crafts or you can email us podcast at fossandcrafts.org we also have a chat room join our community hash foss and crafts on irc.freenode.net if you'd like to support the show you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r that's it for this week until next time stay free and stay crafty So could you explain what the difference between these two things are? No. (laughs) Okay.